you got your Bibles with you, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Please hear this public reading of God's Word. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray briefly together. Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to be able to open your word and to think on your word and to uh, hear your word preached. Uh, But Father, we would acknowledge, all of us would acknowledge that this is a neglected passage of scripture. Uh, This is a passage that we would be tempted to race right through in our reading and uh, it will pose its unique challenges for us today. So I, I would ask that you would help us because this passage is a neglected passage. I pray that you'd help us to be attentive to us. Help us not to zone out, assuming that this is just a list of names, but help us to remember that uh, all Scripture is inspired by you and is profitable. And so, Father, I pray that we really would be changed and transformed by this passage of Scripture as obscure as it is. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So sometimes here at North Avenue Church, we get a very familiar passage you will get preached from this pulpit. A few years ago, Mark preached from John chapter 1. He just talked about a great passage of Scripture, a very familiar passage of Scripture. Mark gave me John 3.16 to preach when we preached through the Gospel of John. And I think 2016, uh, Jerry Edgar preached from Romans 8.28. Very familiar passage. Just a couple of weeks ago, Greg Rentz preached from Psalm chapter 1. So sometimes you get a very familiar passage of Scripture. Other Sundays, you get a much more neglected passage of Scripture. This Sunday falls into the latter category, no doubt, about it. I'm sure you sensed that even as I read that passage of Scripture. 
Some people would say that this is certainly the most uh, obscure passage in the Gospel of Matthew, the most neglected in the Gospel of Matthew. Some people would even say this is the most neglected in the entire New Testament, this passage that we just read. Alistair Begg said this is a passage that is rarely read and seldom preached, seldom preached. And actually, he went through 33 Christmases, and he never once preached on this text. 33 Christmases, never once preached on it. And I think it was the 34th Christmas was rolling around, and he thought to himself, you know, why is it that I always start in Matthew 1.18 when I preach from the Gospel of Matthew at Christmas time? So he decided to grab his Bible down. He opened his Bible up, and he read the first 17 verses, the verses that we just read. And then he said to himself, hmm, that's why I always start in Matthew 1.18. So I would just say at the beginning, this is an obscure passage of Scripture. Uh, just to know that at the outset, maybe also I'm saying that to have a little compassion on me teaching a very difficult uh, passage to preach on. Uh, the title of my sermon is going to be in the form of a question. I'm stealing this from my dad's sermon. He had his notes from years ago, and he let me borrow his notes. I'm stealing his title, but not stealing his point, stealing his title. In the form of a question, the question is this, what may we learn from the genealogy of Jesus? What may we learn From the genealogy of Jesus, that's the title of the sermon, we're going to have six answers to that question are going to form the six points of this sermon. So six answers to that question are going to form the six points of that sermon. Point Point number one, answer number one, what may we learn from the genealogy of Jesus? We learn that all scripture is profitable, even genealogies. We learn that all scripture is profitable, even genealogies. R.C. Sproul, in his sermon on this text, he said, this is not simply a list of names, but this is a list of names inspired by God the Holy Spirit for our edification. Now we all know that R.C. Sproul is right on the money when he says that. We all believe that, at least in our heads, we, we know this is not just a list of names. This is a list of names inspired by God for our edification. But my question is, do we really believe that? Deep down, do we really believe that? I know Jerry Edgar believes this, but what about the rest of us? Do we really believe that this is a list of names inspired by God for our edification? So I want to start with a true story. It's a wonderful story that has to do with our text, and I hope that this story will help remind us that all Scripture is profitable, even genealogies. This is a story about two Wycliffe Bible translators named Desmond and Ginny Oatridge. They spent, I think, 20-plus years with the Wycliffe Bible translators, and in 1958, they decided to take uh, the gospel to an unreached tribe in Papua New Guinea called the Binu Maran people. They had no language, no alphabet, so Ginny and Desmond... Uh, moved in with that tribe, and they began this long and arduous process of trying to learn the language. And then once they sort of learned the language, they tried to develop an alphabet. And then they, once they developed the alphabet, they tried to put, you know, words together, and then they tried to teach the Binumaran people how to read and write. This took years of time just to do that. And after doing that, they decided they would begin translating the Bible uh, for the Binumaran people. And they chose the Gospel of Matthew as the first book of the Bible that they were going to translate for this people group. But Desmond decided not to start in Matthew 1.1. He decided to start in Matthew 1.18. Does it sound like Alistair Begg? He decided to start in Matthew 1.18. And uh, this is what he said. He thought the genealogy would turn them off to the gospel of Matthew. He thought it would turn them off before they even got started. So I'm going to start in Matthew 1.18 and then go from there. So he and his language helper, a man from the tribe named Sisia, they began the long and arduous process of translating the, the Bible, starting in Matthew 1.18 all the way to the end of Matthew 28. This took them years of time they spent translating, and they finally finished at the end of Matthew 28 after years of time. He came home to his wife, and he said, Jenny, we finally did it. We finished the gospel of Matthew. And his wife, though, knew that they had started in Matthew 1.18, so she said, what about the first 17 verses? And he said, oh, yes, those uninteresting verses that told of Jesus' ancestry back to Abraham. I had to tackle those before we were really done. But he had 
had a huge accomplishment doing all the rest of Matthew. Quick side note, the people had begun to read the Gospel of Matthew that he translated from 118 to the end of 28, but it didn't seem to have much of an impact at all on the Benumaran people. They were exposed to it, but no impact whatsoever really with uh, the Gospel of Matthew. So Desmond gets Sissia, his language helper, and they sat down to begin working on our text for today to begin translating it. And they sailed through the long genealogy, and Sissia was not bored at all. Surprisingly, he wasn't bored at all. He made no comment on the translation, as he often did, and they finished the translation in no time, sort of record time they were finished, with Matthew 1, 1 to 17. And when they finished, he rose up, and he said with some deliberation in his voice, he said, there's going to be an important meeting in um, E.P.'s house tonight. I want you to come and bring what we've done today. And he left. And Desmond is sitting there wondering, why does he want to have this important meeting tonight in, in this guy's house? He wasn't sure. He thought maybe they want to celebrate the fact that they really are finished with the Gospel of Matthew. But he thought, if that's the case, why does he want me to bring what we've translated today? He wasn't sure. He was just going to have to wait till that night to figure it out. So that night finally came. He took a lantern in hand to make his way over to this guy's house. He walked into this guy's house, and the place was packed with people. He said it was the most people, the most Benermarn people he'd ever seen in one location in the entire time he was there. The outer rooms were packed, and he squeezes through these people. He is led into the central room. The central room is packed with people. He is led to the middle of that central room, and he is told to sit right by the fireplace there in the central room, packed out with people. Sissia, his language helper, immediately took charge of the situation, and he, he spoke with his usual authoritarian voice, and he said, I have asked Desmond to come and read what we translated this morning. I can't tell it to you. I want you to hear it for yourselves. So then the room became extraordinarily still, and Desmond was aware that all eyes were locked on him, and so he just cleared his throat, and he began to read through our passage of Scripture. Uh, I don't have his exact translation. My dad actually had a portion of his exact translation, but you'll get the idea with this. He began to read, These are the ancestors of Jesus Messiah, a descendant of King David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, etc. And as he is reading, he became aware that the people were getting up and they were coming very close to him. People in the outer rooms are squeezing into the inner, inner room and the people in the inner room are getting right up next to him. One man is, literally brushes his arm right up against him. Another man comes right in front of him. The guy's beard is almost touching the manuscript that he's reading from him. They're just getting right next to him. I mean, just pushing right next to him. And the, he said, the air was tense. He said it seemed like not a dog barked, not a baby cried. There was absolute silence as he read, just the crackling of the fire and the sound of his voice as he read through Matthew 1, 1 to 17. And he wasn't sure. He wasn't sure why this unusual response, why they were having this response. And he just kept on reading. And then he got to the end. There are 14 generations from Abraham to King David and 14 from King David's time to the exile in Babylon and 14 from the exile to Christ. They had heard him out. So he raises his eyes, and he's literally looking face to face with some of the people, and he wants to see what their response is going to be. And immediately, somebody said, why didn't you tell us all of this before? Another person said, it's only real people who record their genealogical table. And then somebody said, with astonishment in their voice, Jesus must be a real person. Do you see what's beginning to happen to the Benumaran people? They had heard about Jesus, but they assumed that he was a mythical figure. They had heard about his life. They heard he was a son of God. They, they heard that he had died for sin. They heard that he had been raised. But they thought, no, he's just a mythical figure. He's not real. But then they see this genealogy. They, that Jesus can trace his genealogy all the way back. You know, 14, 14, 14. He must be a real person. If he's a real person, then he really is who he says he is. He really can forgive sins. You see, they're beginning to, to understand. It's all real. And then they all begin to discuss at once, and they all begin to trace his genealogy back, and they're lining it up with their ancestor, and they say, Jesus has a longer ancestry than we do. And then someone again said, Jesus must have been a real man on this earth then. 
then what the missionaries have taught us, it's real. You see, for the, the Binumar people, the genealogy of Matthew offered conclusive evidence that Jesus was not a mythical figure. He was a real person in a real place in time who actually did the things written about him in the Gospels. And th this is what Desmond said. He said, I felt thoroughly rebuked. He said, I left the translation of this part of the book to last because I thought it would turn the people off before they had a chance to really sample Matthew's gospel. But you see, it was the genealogy. This genealogy was the key piece to leading many of the Benumaran people to faith in Christ. So I share that to remind us all, all scripture, every bit of it is profitable, even the genealogies in the Bible. So when we are tempted to, to race through the genealogies, remember the Benumaran people and how this passage was the key piece for them for saving faith. Point number two, second answer to the question, what may we learn from the genealogy of Jesus? We learn, number two, of the humility of Jesus. We learn of the humility of Jesus. Let me read verse one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here in verse one, we see the humility of Jesus, but you say, where is the humility of Jesus? I don't see the humility of Jesus there. Well, most of the commentators didn't see the humility of Jesus there either, but leave it to Charles Spurgeon in his commentary. He's the one who saw the humility of Jesus. And I, this was another commentator pointed this out to me, and he, he said as if Spurgeon puts his pen down for a second, he began to soak on this verse, verse one of Matthew one, and he began to think about it. And as he thought, he's gonna end up seeing the humility of Jesus, but how did Spurgeon do this? I think he thought about who Jesus is. He reminded himself, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And he maybe went to John 1 or Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1 is a great place to go to remind us who Jesus is. Hebrews 1 says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That's Jesus. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. John 1, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. And I think Spurgeon is thinking, okay, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. All things are made by him and for him and through him. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Okay, and then he thinks genealogy. He comes to the genealogy. Wait a minute. This Jesus who upholds the universe by the words of power has a genealogy? He sees the humility right there. This Jesus has a genealogy. And Spurgeon said, marvelous condescension, that God should be a man and have a genealogy. Even he who was in the beginning with God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Marvelous condescension. What unfathomable humility it was when God became man. So when we read Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, it ought to be enough for us to stop and think to pause and praise. I just think every Christmas, Mark already hinted at this, every Christmas season when we come to the manger scene, we should be amazed at the humility of Jesus. We should be staggered at his humility that he would come to a feeding trough. He who upholds the universe by the word of his power. So what's the application maybe for these first two points? I think number one, when think about the Benumaran people and that all scripture is profitable. I think that the application is the Bible is precious and it's endlessly fascinating. We know this to be true, that the Bible is precious. We know it to be true, but I think when you, you, you really see it like this, uh, we want to soak in the Word more. I think when, when Mark texted me about this passage several weeks ago and said, do you want to preach on the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew 1, 1 to 17? Well, I got my Bible out, and I did exactly what Alistair Begg did. I read through this passage, and I'm sitting there thinking, how can you preach that? There's no way I can do this. And I didn't say yes right away. I just said, probably I can do it. A few days later, I think I said, probably I can, I can do it. I think that's what I said. Uh, but as I study this passage, as I soak in this passage, this obscure passage, listen to people in this passage, it slowly begins to open, like a little flower begins to open. You begin to see things in it. So I hope that we will see that the Bible is, is precious. We want to soak in the Word more. And I think what Spurgeon teaches me 
when he soaks on Matthew 1, 1, Spurgeon reminds me that I shouldn't treat the Bible merely academically. Yes, we want to study it. And we want to dive into it and diagram it and really dive into it. But at the end of the day, we want to take that truth and we want to pull it down into the heart. We want to worship over the passages that require us to worship. We want to have the proper response of joy. So when we study like Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We want to study that, think on it deeply. But at the end of the day, we want to sit back and say, how amazing. How marvelous this is that there is no condemnation. All I deserve is condemnation. So over and over, we should have the proper response to Scripture. And Spurgeon reminds us to pull it down. Respond with joy where joy is needed. When we read on hell, we should have a, a somber response and pray for, for the lost. We've got to bring things down. And Spurgeon does a great job reminding us of that. Point number three, what may we learn from the genealogy of Jesus? We learn, number three, that the Messiah has come. We learn that the Messiah has come. Let me read verses 1, 16, and 17, looking for a key word in these verses. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations generations. Three times in this text, we see what one pastor said is the most important word in this long list of names. It's not a word, it's a title. It's a title. It's Christ. We see it three times. In verse 1, 16, and 17, we see the word Christ, which is a title. It's not Jesus' last name. It's a title, which means Messiah. It means anointed one. It means Messiah. What Matthew is doing, and Matthew is a Jewish man writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and what he's trying to show this Jewish audience is that the Messiah has come in the person of Jesus, and he's showing this right at the very beginning of his gospel. He's showing that the, the, the long-promised Messiah has come in the person of Jesus. Now, of course, the Jewish people at that time, they were waiting for the Messiah. They're longing for this Messiah to come. But when they thought about the Messiah, they were thinking uh, about a royal Messiah. They're, they're waiting for a political military salvation is what they were looking for, political military salvation. They're thinking that the Romans are going to be destroyed, and then Jewish reign is going to be set back up in Jerusalem. But that's uh, not what Jesus was going to bring. He's not going to bring political military salvation. No, it's far better news what Jesus was going to bring. You see, the people were burdened by the Roman rule, but you see, the real burden that burdened them, and the real burden that burdens us is our sins and the judgment of God that is to follow because of our sins. And you see, Matthew is telling us that the Messiah has come, not to destroy the Romans. Jesus is coming as a suffering servant, dying for the sins of human. Kind. So this is wonderful news that the Messiah has come. And what Matthew is doing is he's sort of setting the tone for the birth of Jesus, which is to follow very soon in Matthew 1. And what he's trying to show us is that this birth is no ordinary birth. This is an extraordinary birth. So when we come to Bethlehem and we look inside that feeding trough, we're looking at the Messiah. We're looking at the one who's come to save and deliver God's people. So now as we think about all these generations, I want to sort of take these last three points and we're going to sort of take a big picture of these uh, all these generations. And there's three things that we can learn, I think, big picture things that we can learn from all these generations. These are going to be the last three points uh, of my message. So first big picture thing, and, and number four point, uh, we learn, big picture thing we learn, we learn that Jesus came at the right time. That Jesus came at the right time. Let me read verse 17 again. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Lots of people give all kinds of different answers about these 14, 14, 14. Some people say that Matthew did this in such a way so it would be easy to memorize. 14, 14, 14. That's very possible. It certainly could be true. Uh, other people got into the technical with the number 14 and this means something significant. Uh, I always get nervous with that. 
another, another uh, commentator said this, and I thought this was just really good. He said that Matthew has intentionally selected names, real historical people who are really part of Jesus' line, and arranged them to make the same theological point that Paul made in Galatians 4. What is Paul saying in Galatians 4? But when the fullness of time had come, think 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations, the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So we see here in all these generations, we see that Jesus comes at just the right time to redeem his people, to adopt us into his family. Second big picture thing that we see in this long uh, genealogy is we learn about God's sovereignty and his faithfulness to fulfill his promises. We learn about God's sovereignty and his faithfulness to fulfill his promises. As you think about all these names, all these generations, what Matthew is doing is he's, he's wanting to show us that God is in sovereign control of world history and he's guiding it for his own purposes. I mean, he's got, he's got to preserve this Davidic line all the way down to Jesus. He's got to preserve it through all these centuries. And that's exactly what we see. God in his sovereignty is preserving this Davidic line all the way through. I'm paraphrasing one commentator who said, Every person in this genealogy, the wicked as well as the devout, formed a link in the chain of providences through all the troubled centuries, through all the national changes. The appointed line was preserved until among the population of an obscure village are found the hardworking carpenter and the poor virgin Mary, and you find a feeding trough and inside is the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. So we see God's sovereignty preserving this line all the way to Jesus. But we also see that God is faithful to his promises. He's faithful to fulfill his promises. Let me read verse 1 again. Everybody talks about how this is a key verse in his genealogy. Verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Everybody points out the son of David, son of Abraham is crucial for Matthew right here at the beginning. What's he saying? Well, I think on the surface, he's showing that Jesus comes from the right line. He has the right lineage to be the Messiah. You can trace it all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to David. But most everybody would say that there's something deeper going on here in verse 1. What's Matthew doing? Well, people say that what Matthew's doing is he's trying to set the stage to show that Jesus comes in fulfillment to these two huge promises given, one to Abraham and one to David. Jesus is coming into f- in fulfillment of these two huge promises. So think about these promises for just a second. Think about Abraham and a huge promise God made to Abraham. You can read about it in Genesis 12, and I'm, just, I'm going to mention Genesis 22 here, but you can read in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. Here's Genesis 22, 18, where God promises Abraham that through his offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. Through Abraham's offspring, all nations on earth are going to be blessed. Well, where's that offspring? Do you see it in Genesis? Do you see him in Exodus? Do you see him in Leviticus? No. Where's this offspring through whom all nations are going to be blessed? Well, you've got to wait all the way till Jesus. You see, Jesus is coming in fulfillment of this great promise given to Abraham. It's through Jesus that all nations are going to be blessed in Christ. And think about the promise given to David, to King David, this huge promise given to David in 2 Samuel 7. God promises David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, there's a sense in which there's an immediate fulfillment of that promise to Solomon given, but the ultimate fulfillment of that promise is not in Solomon. Solomon is not the one who's going to reign forever and ever. So where is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise given to David? Well, Jesus is David's greater son who's going to reign in righteousness, and of whose kingdom there shall be no end. So Jesus the Messiah came in fulfillment of the kingdom promises to David and then the promise to Abraham. Through him, all nations are going to be blessed. So what can we learn from this point that God is sovereign and we see his sovereignty and the fact that he fulfills his promises, faithful to fulfill his promises? What's the application? Well, I think in terms of 
God's sovereignty, we would say that uh, we want to trust Him. We want to rest in His sovereignty and in His goodness. We want to say that our times are in God's hands. So when life is not going according to our plan, we want to rest and trust that God is sovereign and He's good in our lives. And we think about the promises, though. God's promises are utterly reliable. They're always utterly reliable. What's the application? Well, I think like what Jerry Edgar would say, you, you camp in the promises. We need to get to know the promises. We need to soak and chew on the promises. We need to memorize the promises because they are certain, they are true. And I think as we meditate on the promises, that's going to strengthen our faith in the Lord. So last point, point number six, what may we learn from the genealogy of Jesus? I'm not going to tell you this one right away. I'm going to leave it cliffhanging for just a little bit. Let me read verses three to six. Let me read verses three to six and see if anything stands out in these verses. And Judah, the father of Perez, verse three, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. So as we read those few verses, anything stand out. There should be something that jumps out at us right away. And that is that there are four women listed right here in this genealogy. And later he's going to include Mary in verse 16. So there's five women in this genealogy, which would be utterly unusual and very rare in that time. There are these women included. D.A. Carson said the fact that uh, Matthew includes women instead of an all-male listing, which was customary, shows that Matthew is conveying more than merely genealogical data. So he's trying to tell us something by including these women. He's selecting, he could select a lot more women, but he selects these women. He's got to have a reason. What is he doing here? Why is he doing this? Well, some people point out that Ruth was a godly woman, but she was a Gentile. She was a Moabitess. Rahab from Jericho was a prostitute. She was a Gentile. Other people believe that Bathsheba, even though she's not mentioned by name there in verse 6, it just says that she was the wife of Uriah at the end of verse 6. See, Uriah was a, a Hittite. It's very possible that Bathsheba was a Hittite as well. It's possible she was a Gentile. Sinclair Ferguson thinks that maybe Tamar was as well, but at least two of the four, and possibly three of the four, and maybe four of the four, are Gentiles. So what may we learn from that? Well, I think that uh, Matthew is showing us that Jesus came for Jew and Gentile alike. This is wonderful news that we should rejoice in as Gentiles, that Jesus came for Jew and Gentile alike. But I think there's a deeper reason why he chooses these four women. What's the deeper reason? Well, let's think about these women for just a second. I'll leave Ruth out since she was a godly woman, but let's think about, start with Bathsheba for just a second. We all know the, the horrific scene there in 2 Samuel 11 with King David. And let's just say that Bathsheba was only 2% at fault in that scenario. But still, let's say that David was 98% at fault. But if she was just 2% to blame, she was involved in an adulterous affair, one that would cost the life of her first husband and her son. So she is certainly a sexual sinner, no doubt about it. Let's think about Tamar next in Genesis 38. You can read about that scene in Genesis 38. It's about as foul a scene as it gets in the Bible. You know the story. I'll remind you briefly. She was childless. She wanted to have a child. So what did she do? She dresses up like a prostitute. She sits on the side of the road there, covers her face. She's acting like a cult prostitute. What happens? Judah, her father-in-law, comes down the street and goes into her in this horrific scene. You have this illicit, adulterous, incestuous relationship. And she becomes pregnant with twins. First off, that's the line of Jesus that he comes in. You see the humility of Jesus. He would come in from this line. That's his ancestry, this horrific scene there. But certainly Tamar is a sexual sinner, no doubt about it. She, uh, 
horrific there, and so is Judah, is a horrific sinner there as well. Now, what about Rahab? Well, Rahab did not disguise herself as a prostitute. She actually was a prostitute. So you have an actual prostitute in the line of Jesus. So what is Matthew trying to tell us by including these sort of sordid, vile sinners in his genealogy? I think you're maybe getting the point, but let me tell a story here that's going to tie into this, still leaving this cliffhanging for just a second. Let me tell you another wonderful story. This is from the life of Martin Lloyd-Jones. This story takes place on Christmas Day in 1929. He was born in 1899, so he was 30 years old when the story takes place. He and his wife were recently married. I think they'd been married a couple of years. I don't think they had any kids. And uh, Lloyd-Jones had helped out this family, this non-Christian family, that he'd helped out with their uh, grown son, and they wanted to sort of repay him some kindness, so they invited uh, the Lloyd-Joneses over for their ho- to their house for Christmas Day. And they'd had lunch with them, and they were going to have this Christmas party that night with lots of people coming. I think mainly non-Christians were going to come that night for this party. And it was the afternoon. Lloyd-Jones wanted to go upstairs. He was just going to rest before this party happened. So he went upstairs. He sat down in a chair, just wanting to rest. And immediately this thought came into his mind. And this was the thought. He needed to talk about Jesus that night at that Christmas party. And not only did he need to talk about Jesus, he needed to raise a very specific question. He needed to raise the question, why did Christ come into the world? And immediately he rejected the idea. He said, I cannot talk about Jesus at this Christmas party. All these non-Christian people there, they're going to get upset with me. They're going to get frustrated with me. I'm just a guest here. I cannot do that. He immediately suppressed the idea. He just wants to relax in his easy chair. He starts trying to relax again. And immediately again, the thought came back to his head. And it came back stronger than the first time. And it was so strong and so agonizing. He eventually got on his knees and he prayed. And he said, Lord, I'll do it. I'll raise that question tonight in order to ease his conscience. He said he would do it. So he prayed about it, sat back in his chair. Finally, that evening came. Lots of non-Christians, mainly non-Christians, I think, are there. This Christmas party. It's 1929, Christmas Day. They began by listening to a radio program. Again, it's 1929. Listen to this radio program. And as soon as the radio program ended, Lloyd-Jones knew this is his opportunity to raise his question. If he doesn't speak now, this thing could go any direction. So as soon as it ended, Lloyd-Jones just spoke up and said, I have something I would like to discuss with everybody. I want to raise this question. The question is, why did Christ come into the world? And immediately people began to discuss it. All kinds of people were trying to answer this question accurately. Why did Christ come into the world? And the, the biographer said nobody was able to answer the question accurately. I mean, it just should remind, this is 1929, but it should remind us some people may not know the very basics of our faith. They're not able to answer this question accurately. So Lloyd-Jones, it was his turn to take center stage and to answer this question for everybody. And I don't have recorded exactly what he says. I don't really know what he said at all, but I can guess what he says. And my guess is what he said that Christmas day in 1929 is exactly the point that Matthew is trying to make by including these sinners on his list. What's the point? The point is Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the point. That's why this list of sordid sinners, because Jesus came for sinners like Rahab and Ruth and uh, Tamar and Judah, sinners like Matthew the tax collector, sinners like us. He came for sinners like us. And I have to keep the Lloyd-Jones story going because it's too good not to finish. So Lloyd-Jones is sitting there just preaching Jesus at this Christmas party in 1929. I think people interrupted him. I think people got angry and people left, but some people stayed. And Lloyd-Jones just kept on, I think, pounding the gospel home that there is a holy God that we've sinned against. I'm sure, I mean, Lloyd-Jones was a fiery guy. And at 30, I can't imagine, he was a very fiery guy at this Christmas party. He's just preaching Jesus at this Christmas party. We've sinned against God. God sent his son to save us, to save sinners like God. If we just repent and trust and believe, we can be forgiven. And as he's lifting up Jesus, the husband of the couple that invited him there, he falls to his knees and he pleads for pardon from his sins. And he is converted that night. Soon after, the wife of this husband, she repents and trusts Christ. 
as the night wore on, their grown daughter, she repented and believed the gospel. You can read this story. It's true. It's in Ian Murray's biography of of Lloyd-Jones in the first volume. Late into the night, their grown son was basically still clutching to his sins, and he relinquished and trusted Christ. He would later become a minister of the gospel, this man. All of the four, the six of them, this family of baby Christians, Lloyd-Jones and his wife Bethan, they knelt to pray that night together. Here's what Lloyd-Jones' wife Bethan said. As we knelt in prayer, I seemed to be full of a warm golden glory, an indescribable joy. I bet there was intense joy that night. But what we see here in Matthew's genealogy is that Jesus came for sinners. Sinners like Matthew, sinners like Rahab, sinners like us. Sinclair Ferguson said Jesus is able to save those who have sinned grievously and flagrantly against him. One pastor said, Matthew is saying, I'm going to present you a Savior who is available for the greatest of sinners. Charles Spurgeon said some of the worst sinners in church history have become miracles of mercy. Isn't that true? I thought about the thief on the cross. I thought about Paul and St. Augustine and John Newton about as vile as you get, converted on that slave ship. I thought about John Patton taking the gospel to cannibals. I mean, cannibals who had eaten human beings were converted by the power of the gospel. So Matthew is reminding us that we all need a Savior. Jew and Gentile alike, righteous and wicked, even the righteous in this genealogy need redemption. And Jesus is the Savior of all kinds and types of people. So as we think about application, what's the application to this last point? I think if you're not a Christian, the application is pretty obvious. The application would be that Jesus is the Savior, therefore receive. Receive the salvation that He freely offers you salvation today. If you just repent and trust in Him, you can be forgiven. So receive the salvation that He offers. Another writer said, Our sins may be as great as those of any whom Matthew names, but they cannot shut us out of heaven if you repent and believe the gospel. And I think for for Christians, the response is wonder and praise, adoration. And if you, you probably know your sins as well as anybody here, I know I'm more intimately aware of my own sins than anybody else's. And if I think about my own sins long enough, I will weep. But Jesus forgives them all. I mean, it's just glorious truth. And I think the other application would be we have a responsibility to tell people. We have the responsibility and we have the privilege to tell people of the Savior. I mean, I think about with our son, we have the privilege. It's an incredible privilege to, to walk him through uh, the gospel story. It's a privilege. We shouldn't see it as a huge burden, but see it as a, as a privilege to lift up the Savior. So what may we learn from this genealogy? We learn that all Scripture is profitable, even genealogies, and when we are tempted to rush through the genealogies in the Bible, remember the Benumaran people who this passage was so important for them, the leading them to saving faith. Number two, we learn of the humility of Jesus. Remember Spurgeon soaking on verse one. We learn, number three, that the Messiah has come. Wonderful news. Number four, we learn that Jesus came at the right time, Galatians 4. Number five, we learn about God's sovereignty and his faithfulness to fulfill his promises. And number six, we learn that Jesus came for sinners. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is indeed precious. Uh, It's an extraordinary gift that we have it in in our own language or in a language we understand. And Father, I know that uh, we can be tempted to race through passages like the one we looked at today, Uh, but I pray that you would help us to remember that tribe, the Benumaran people, 
and how this passage was so crucial to them. Help us to remember that all Scripture is profitable, even genealogies. But Father, as we think about this passage, we are freshly amazed at the humility of Jesus. Thank you for Charles Spurgeon and uh, how he pointed that out to us. But Father, we're so thankful that this passage tells us that Jesus came for sinners. What good news this is that we get to celebrate a Savior who has come. And Father, I pray that if there are any who have not trusted in you yet, I pray that they would repent, they would turn, they would trust in Christ. And I pray that they would be forgiven and would experience the new birth. I pray now, even as we sing, that we would sing joyfully uh, in, in response to what you've done for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.